This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We have long been warned about a looming shortage of nurses, or should I say a larger shortage than we are facing now. As many leave the profession because of the difficulties and stress of working through COVID and other issues with working conditions and compensation. In Quebec, the province is offering nurses bonuses, signing bonuses of up to $18,000. And we just heard more about what's behind that and it is pretty staggering. They have a vaccine mandate. And at this point, we are September 29th now. 17,000 healthcare workers in Quebec are still unvaccinated and could be facing suspension or termination in a couple of weeks. Now, can the same thing be happening here? And what's the explanation for these staggering numbers? Uh, A little later, we'll be talking to the CEO of one of the hospitals, a hospital in Windsor that has already started to suspend unvaccinated employees. Right now, Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hi, Doris. Thank you for joining us. I live it so good to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, Doris, when you see these numbers from Quebec, what's your reaction? Um, sadness, to tell you the truth. Sadness and um, very frustrating that healthcare workers, and let me tell you, this is a, a diverse group of healthcare workers, includes nurses, doctors, uh, radiologists, etc., 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 uh, that still are not vaccinated. I mean, it tells you, um, I, I think Quebec is doing the right thing in the sense that they are doing a province-wide approach. I think you will see when the deadline comes, you will see, my hunch, at least a third of them vaccinated, if not more. Um, at the end of the day, Libby, we are here to take care of people that uh, require health services. They're not going to a, sh- to a mall to shop, and they need to be protected from this deadly virus because it's deadly. And healthcare workers, our first duty is to no harm. So the province in Quebec is doing the right thing, and it's what we are asking Premier Ford to do. Uh, I've... I've- uh, looked at some of the numbers from Ontario. Now, in, in Ontario, of course, it's a total hodgepodge, right? Because each, the, the, the provincial mandate, uh, it doesn't really mandate vaccinations and Correct. it's up to each hospital and some hospitals have banded together and they have different deadlines. And I've looked at the numbers of, of people that are unvaccinated and it, it doesn't look like there's any way it's going to add up to, 18, no, Libby, no, and in part it's because we have taken, as you know, this approach that our duty is to get fully vaccinated unless we have a medical exemption, which should be as restrictive as the one for the passport, which is very little, right? Um, and the duty is that we need to protect ourselves so we protect patients 
and that's where it starts, that's where it ends. So we have been very supportive of the hospitals that have taken a stand on it. We are being very supportive of nursing home. We wish all of them will do. And in fact, we're asking the premier that he should, you know, um, he should take the courage. He should have the courage that some of those CEOs are having because in a sense, the premier is the CEO of this province and he should have the courage to mandate across the board for all healthcare workers in all settings and sectors and also for all educators. But, okay, why do you think, I mean, Quebec is next door. Uh, it, there is a, a, a little bit of a different culture there, but, you know, they're, they're Canadians like us. Why, why do you think this huge divergence in acceptance exists? Well, there are two diversions. One is in the approach of the premiers that over there he took a stand. And the other is the divergence of associations. I mean, we took a stand to support what the premier of Manitoba is doing. I tell you, if we were in Manitoba and supporting vocally that everybody needs to get fully vaccinated, uh, he will not have those numbers with all due respect to my colleagues there and to other associations there. They are doing the right thing for patients. And that's what comes first, Libby. This is... You know, we all believe, you too, I'm sure, as a, I believe as a feminist, my, my, my body, my choice, you know? But this is a pandemic. This is not about, you know, this is about the impact on the collective. And this is the impact on very vulnerable people, people that are requiring health services, or people in the education sector that cannot even get vaccinated. They're under 12. So enough of this. And yes, there is a minority that is still hesitant. Remember, these are health professionals. They practice based on evidence. So the hesitancy is the minority. The majority is my body, my choice, and all those issues that I respect in times of no pandemic and related to anything that relates to no pandemic, not on a pandemic. Uh, turning... Are are we, uh, you know, nurses are leaving the professions for other reasons. It's very difficult yes. to work and uh, apparently uh, difficult, more difficult emotionally now that uh, so many of their patients in the ICUs are unvaccinated and yes. patients with other serious illnesses are having to have their treatments put off. Uh, what do you anticipate in terms of a shortage of nurses? Huge, Libby, across the world. Uh, huge, uh, in Canada, huge, in Ontario, even worse, because as you may remember, we, I have been before in, in your program saying we have the lowest going into the pandemic. We had the lowest RN per population. So now you layer into that the fact that in the U.S. there are over a million short, over a million RNs. Just picture that number. Yeah, they, the, for... and they don't have a Bill 124, Libby. So I have said to the Premier so many times to away with Bill 124, let unions negotiate. How much are they going to negotiate? You know what I mean? Let them do their job and also help us build careers in nursing right here at home. Bridging programs between PSW and RPN. Bridging programs within RPN and RN bridging programs to attend to nurse practitioners. Let's build careers for nurses now, here, 
pay their certifications for specialty, for ICU, critical care, step down, etc. Now is the time because if not, they will continue not to leave the profession. Many of them will not leave the profession, but they will go to Nova Scotia, BC, where there is no Bill 124. They're already doing that. And they will go to the U.S. They did that in the 90s. It will happen again, except that now we have a shortage layered on a shortage, and we have also a wait list of people that require health services that is from here to you know where. Uh, and uh, do you think that some type of signing bonus uh, like they're doing in Quebec, do you think that would help? I don't. I think it will help. It's a band-aid solution. will help in the very short run. But just picture yourself or anybody else. They will go for the next bonus and the next bonus. And we cannot compete on bonuses with the U.S. What we can compete is in building careers in nursing here at home. So if you sign, if you come to Sinai or you go to UHN or you go to a hospital or a primary care setting in Sudbury, wherever it is, that you know that if you will stay there for two, three years, they will cover your specialty certification, that you know that you will have mentorship to move from one role to another, that you know that you will have lower workloads. The workloads are unbearable, Libby. People, everybody, you, me, and everybody, want to feel that at least 80% of the time we're doing a good job. And when you are double or triple the patients, this is not, you know, uh, it's not doable. It's not doable. And so they are seeing that their practice is suffering and that patients are suffering for not being able to respond to all of their needs in a timely way consistently versus consistently doing a good job. And then once in a while, things, things are, you know, unbearable. It's the opposite now and cannot continue this way. Okay. Uh, Doris, thank you so much for that. I'm sure we'll be checking back with you very soon. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And to my colleagues, please get double fully vaccinated ASAP. We need you. Thank you. Thank you. Here in Ontario, it's up to hospitals, as we said, to make the rules around vaccination for their employees, which means the requirements are different in different places. Hundreds of unvaccinated staff are still working in GTA hospitals, even as other healthcare centers here in Ontario have already begun suspending employees who refuse their COVID shots. At the UHN, for example, everyone needs to be fully vaxxed by October 22nd. And if they don't have the shots by then, and I'm quoting, uh, they will have made the decision that they will no longer be working at UHN. At Sunnybrook and Sinai, though, unvaccinated staff can continue to work if they agree to testing, which is as far as the province will go. Meanwhile, Windsor Regional Hospital is one of the places that has already started suspending unvaccinated workers. CEO David Moucher joins me now, along with Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, David Moucher, uh, how's how's it going? Um, what is your compliance rate and the reaction to taking action? Uh, it, it's going fine. Uh, as we stand now, I mean, we're at 97.3% of our staff 
which includes our employees and professional staff, are vaccinated or following the policy. So on September 22nd, we had to um, suspend um, or put on a two-week unpaid leave 140 employees and seven professional staff. That number is already down to 113 in total, meaning um, some 27 more have complied with the policy since uh, taking the two weeks um, unpaid. And uh, the at October 7th at 12.01 a.m., um, if they are not uh, started the vaccination campaign, then the remaining employees and professional staff will be uh, terminated or their privileges will be uh, terminated as of that time. So uh, overall, clearly the positive comments from the community far outweigh the negative comments. Um, however, unfortunately, there are some in our communities that are using this as, if you want to use the word, the hill to die on, is they are going to fight the need for vaccination regardless of what ourselves and UHN's data shows regarding the chances of uh, acquiring COVID in the first place. Uh, you know, unvaccinated or vaccinated, the chance of being hospitalized in the ICU or ultimately passing away are far greater for those unvaccinated than those vaccinated. And regardless of those statistics, they're gonna, like I said, this is the hill they're gonna, they're gonna die on, which is, uh, we have to move forward. Yeah, Dr. Vaisman, I mean, uh, UHN has its own policy. The date uh, is different, it's October 22nd. And even though, you know, your percentage is high, uh, you know, in a raw number, there are lots of unvaccinated people. It's about 550 unvaccinated staff and 200 with an unknown vaccination status. I don't even know how you have an unknown vaccination status, but um, w- what do you think of that number? I'm sure you're missing that number when you're providing care. Yeah, that's right. So the number that you're saying, it's true, although we have a very high proportion that does account because UHN is large, does account for a large number of individuals. But that number is coming down. So hopefully as we get closer and closer to the deadline, we'll see more and more staff uh, being vaccinated. And we are doing a lot as an institution to try to address the concerns of frontline staff about the vaccination, providing education, uh, any kind of form of face-to-face or online or virtual discussion with staff. So hopefully we that number does come down. As for the unknown, um, you know, we don't know exactly why that is. It might be some individuals who are no longer with institution who have not reported. So we, we are clarifying that as well. Uh, you know, m- my feeling is that basically everyone who wants a vaccine has got one. There is kind of no excuse, though I guess the prospect of actually being fired from your job does have a, a bit of an impact. Uh, David Mouché, would would you agree with that, that really people, the people who are left uh, just really don't want this? Yeah, there are going to be a certain individuals that regardless of what their job opportunities are here at the hospital or outside in the community, uh, they are going to not get vaccinated. We live in a border town in Windsor-Essex. Detroit hospitals have already implemented this, and then President Biden announced it a couple of weeks ago where he mandated it, mandated it for any healthcare organization receiving federal funds. So he made it very clear, and their vaccination rates are up to 
I think where we are, and I have to give UHN the credit because they took the lead on this uh, first. We followed. Um, we kind of jumped a little bit ahead of them just because of the timing uh, recently, but uh, they need to get a lot of credit for this, for taking the lead. And that's what it takes. It takes leadership. We can't, as a hospital, say to our community, you need to get vaccinated. Vaccinated pu- plus public health measures is the way we're going to get through this pandemic and then say, oh, except for our employees, we don't need to. So we have to lead by example. And one of the issues also is I've had enough conversations with families that had their loved one infected with COVID, came to the hospital for a non-COVID reason, got infected and unfortunately passed away. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this will totally eliminate it, but it's going to reduce those risks greatly. And as healthcare workers, healthcare leaders, we have to do everything in our power to reduce the risks of that happening. And this is the way to do it. It's scientifically proven as a way to do it. And if we want to get through this next wave and get on the other side of this pandemic, this plus public health measures is the way to go. We look forward to our province to also take the lead. Right. I was going to say something. I was just going to ask, would would your task be easier if it was a provincial mandate as opposed to the hospitals taking the lead? Uh, Definitely. Yeah, it would be. So that's what we're looking forward to. Other provinces have uh, mandated this. So um, we're looking forward to that happening. Um, And it's not only for for us, because, again, ourselves and UHN has stated we'll probably get the 98, 99 percent on our own. But as a system, we have to make sure we can't have a hospital do this on their own and then get to 85 percent. Because what we saw with respect to wave three, definitely, it's all hands on deck. It's all of Ontario needs to work together and we can't have one part of Ontario uh, negatively impacted by this, while the other is, oh, 99%, we're fine. That doesn't work in COVID. Uh, we've learned that in COVID. And the other thing we've learned in COVID is don't wait. If you're going to make this decision, do it now. Because waiting is uh, the enemy of ourselves, and COVID loves people waiting. Dr. Vaisman, there's this issue cropping up. I, I mean, it, it seems like it's very difficult for healthcare workers. We have those people demonstrating. We have stories about families, you know, dumping on healthcare workers. And the, just the frustration that they're treating unvaccinated people in an ICU when somebody's cancer treatment is delayed. Yes. Uh, exactly. So there's so many other downstream consequences to having COVID uh, rampaging in the community, having increased cases in the future with another wave, that there's so much other care. There's a lot of focus on surgeries, but of course, there's so many other aspects of medical care that have been delayed or canceled as a result of the pandemic that needs to become normal now. So, of course, there's the risk to yourself and others if you could infect somebody with COVID, but there's the broader risk to the entire province, the entire medical institution that you're affecting somebody else's care if you if a lot of people are getting COVID and being admitted to hospital. So it's a very broad impact. I mean, right now we seem to be in a relatively good period. Uh, we're experiencing something under 500 cases a day, which is less certainly less than worst case modeling. But uh, you know, what do you expect that to change when the weather gets colder? So certainly things have been very positive over the last two months. The wave that we saw was abated already. It's coming down, and it seems like that was a result of the Stage 3 reopening. 
now the next question is what will be the effects of having the schools opened up in early and mid-September across the province? Are we going to see a significant number of cases again with a number of deaths rising? That, that's what remains to be seen over the next few weeks in about approximately a month or two. Fortunately, the science-stable predictions that came out yesterday showed that things are fairly going to be fairly stable during this period. Um, but as we saw from the what happened in other provinces, there was there, the possibility of things taking off again. I think staying at stage three, where we are now, where we've been since mid-July, makes a lot of sense. It's done a, a lot of good in preventing things from getting very bad again. David Moucher, what about a shortage of workers? Uh, you're saying that the number is, uh, is, is somewhere over 100. Uh, do you anticipate a worse shortage? And, and how are you functioning even with that kind of a number? Yeah, so we're we're doing okay with the number of staff that are off right now on an unpaid uh, leave. Um, so if all of them happen to unfortunately get terminated, uh, we should do okay. But again, it's what does the future hold with respect to health human resources? And the goal here is trying to ensure not only our community is safe, but our staff is safe. And again, the quickest way to make sure our staff is safe is to make sure they're double vaccinated um, and wearing uh, proper PPE. And just having one or the other isn't right now it's a layered approach so um can we cope right now sure and again that's what we're trying to do is lead by example indicate to the community vaccination is very important it's not only important in our four walls but clearly important in the community and again ourselves in uhn because we started early we'll probably be okay um, you know, I can't fully speak for UHN. I'm concerned about the system as a whole, and that's why it would help uh, definitely to have uh, the province speak up shortly and, um, and uh, make some mandates. And I think that'll then get everybody up to 98, 99%. Um, I have an HR question that uh, I'm sure taxpayers are wondering about. So uh, the suspensions are without pay. Uh, the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal has said that they're not giving anti-vaxxers, uh, they don't have a case. So if you terminate people, are you going to be terminating them without uh, severance? Correct. It's for cause. It's so for there's cause. no severance. Okay. Um, that, that's, um, that's very interesting. I'm sure uh, some taxpayers are happy to hear that. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, what would you like to leave us with? I think uh, things are going generally well uh, in terms of most healthcare workers getting vaccinated. But as your guest mentioned, uh, made very gr- great points regarding this is that if we have a mandate coming from the province, that will make an excellent, uh, will have a huge effect on the entire province in terms of improving our vaccination rates for healthcare workers, especially with you know long-term care, congregate settings, those are the places where people are most vulnerable. So having a province-wide recommendation or mandate that all healthcare workers be vaccinated will go a long way in preventing outbreaks in all these facilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. David Moucher was just talking about that, but one of the things that strikes me, you were also talking about how you got in front of this early, it seems from the province they eventually come around, but late. So is is it not a bit late for even if they do decide to put in a province-wide mandate? It, right now, I mean, luckily, as I mentioned, the cases have come down. This wave that we just saw across August and September was very small. So luckily, by virtue of just the vaccination rates being high in the community, we didn't have to, we didn't experience a very significant wave. But 
it does buy us a little bit of time for the province to do the right thing and mandate it across the board in all the healthcare facilities. So certainly they are late to the game, but it's not too late to make the decision. Exactly. I just want to reemphasize, even though I would love to have had it happen earlier, another thing we've learned from COVID, it's never too late. So it's the time is now um, and the time is right to do this and it's the right thing to do. And we have to remember over 80% of our population is vaccinated. And as I stated earlier, the positive comments far outweigh the negative. Unfortunately, sometimes the negative are the loudest and the minority are the loudest. And those are the ones we hear from. But the vast majority of individuals support this and they are comforted knowing that when they come to a hospital, the staff they're sitting in front of is double vaccinated plus 14 days. It doesn't eliminate the risk, but it greatly reduces it. Okay, uh, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman and David Mouché of Windsor Regional Hospital. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. Well, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, boy, an about face from the Amalgamated Transit Workers Union in a standoff with management also over vaccine policy. We'll get you up to date on that. And let me give the numbers out uh, if you want to say something about all of this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we will be right You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, It's a stunning reversal that we just found out about it just as we were going to air today. And it appears that the Toronto Transit Commission's largest union has backed down in its fight against management over the vaccine mandate. Now, what had happened before was that they were advising their members not to disclose their vaccination status. And uh, the TTC uh, filed an emergency uh, petition with the Labour Board. Uh, is saying that this amounted to illegal strike activity. Well, it appears the union is now telling its members, yes, disclose your inoculation status. Uh, you know, they're doing so still using combative kind of a language. Uh, there was a message from the president of the local, Local 113, and he basically said that the TTC CEO, quote, created an unnecessary and unfortunate crisis. So uh, where does this leave everything? And is it going to move things along? Let's go to Stuart Green, who is a spokesman for the TTC. Hi, Stuart. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So when did this happen? Uh, when did, well, so last night we, uh, or yesterday afternoon, late yesterday afternoon, we filed our motion with the Labor Relations Board um, uh, in view of the uh, actions of 113 previously, which was they were actively discouraging their members from um, sharing their vaccine status by tomorrow. 
Um, uh, obviously, today we've seen that uh, they've they've had a change of heart, which is which is good news. Um, and they are now encouraging their members to to comply with the uh, sharing of their status. Uh, so we'll continue to work with them as uh, as we roll out the policy by the end of October. Uh, if this had gone, if your complaint had to uh, run its full course, what what would the possible consequences have been for the union? Well, so so really, what, I mean, we were hoping it wouldn't get to that point. I mean, obviously, you know, whenever you take these actions, they're they're sort of extreme actions, but they're necessary because. Uh, you know, it was it was seriously hampering our ability to to get our statuses in and and to really get this uh, policy rolled out. So, you know, I, I think our hope was was that the union would, as they have uh, seen the light and uh, and come to their senses, um, which is which is good news. So, um, you know, that's where we are now. And um, you know, whether uh, we we now have to review what happens with our labor board filing, um, and we'll we'll have some decisions to make over the next day or two. Um, but for now, it's good news that they will uh, they're they're encouraging people to share their status. Uh, I'm not sure if they uh, saw the light or were forced to see the light. <laughs> I'd I'd like to give the numbers out again because I'd sure. like to hear from people whether this makes them more comfortable about riding the TTC. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Do you have a sense, was this, I mean, that union has on occasion been a militant uh, union. Was Are there anti-vaxxers in there, or was it an issue um, saying, hey, we don't want to have to disclose that's private information. That's what they said it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I know you're not asking me to speak for them, and I yeah. never would. I, I, I you know, I, I can't I can't speak to their motives. Um, uh, you know, they, they are, they do have a, a union executive election coming up in December. They are in bargaining with us right now. Uh, this could have been a bit of posturing. I don't know. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that uh, that they have sort of come around uh, and they and they will be encouraging members to share. You know, as far as anti-vaxxers, again, I don't know who is in their membership. Um, uh, you know, we know that through things like our case counts, uh, you know, anecdotal uh, sort of speaking to uh, our employees, the vast majority of our employees are, in fact, vaccinated. That, that's our belief. Um, this was about sharing the status. And in fact, 113 has said publicly, uh, and Mr. Santos has said publicly, they support uh, va- vaccination. They were very early, uh, they, they, very early advocates for having transit workers vaccinated. So we know that they support vaccination, which is great. Um, this was simply a matter of, of a disclosure of status. And, and, you know, I want to assure, you know, not just your listeners, but anyone who may work for the TTC, we absolutely will take privacy as, as, as a top concern. Uh, you know, this is not about getting personal health information beyond a yes or no, are you vaccinated? And if you're not, let us help you get vaccinated. We can work with you. We've got clinics in our, in our workplaces. Uh, the city obviously has clinics. We're running pop-ups with the city. We can, you know, get you into one of those clinics if you're not yet vaccinated. Um, but, you know, uh, really that's the, the end result here is just to make sure everybody's vaccinated when they're coming to work so that their coworkers are safe, their families are safe, and our customers have the confidence that they're, the people that's driving their bus are vaccinated. What are your case counts? Um, so right now we're um, we're at about uh, we're sort of we're sort of in line with what's happening in the community. Um, some days we have zero, some days we have one or two. Uh, we haven't had more than two a day uh, for for quite some time. In fact, in the last few months, we've had a number of days with no cases at all. Um, and and again, our our thoughts. Uh, are that this is not uh, workplace spread, this is community spread uh, that people are getting. 
And what's your sense of uh, people's attitude? Are are people worried about riding the TTC? Well, so I mean, I mean, you know, there, there, people. I think there are some people who are worried about doing a lot of things in public. Uh, I ride the TTC twice a day to and from work. I come into the office every day and I take the TTC twice a day. Ninety-seven uh, percent of our customers are wearing masks. The TTC is safe. Public health advises that there is no evidence of transmission on public transit uh, of the COVID uh, virus because most people. Uh, are following the proper procedures and protocols, which is great. We don't take that for granted. Um, but we do know that there are people who are uncomfortable. Uh, you know, some people are uncomfortable with going back to their workplace, uh, which may require them to take a, t- a trip on transit. Uh, maybe it doesn't, but, but you know, there, there is, there's, you know, when it comes to, you know, transit customers, uh, we're probably seeing and hearing the same sorts of things that you're hearing and seeing uh, from your friends when you, you know, when you speak to them on the phone or you're uh, at, a, at a nice socially distanced cocktail party or something. Uh, you know, people talk about this stuff, right? And, and there are people who are, you know, legitimately concerned. And, uh, you know, so part of our job, of course, is to let them know that the TTC uh, is safe, that, you know, we have additional protocols in place. We've upgraded our ventilation. We have hand sanitizer. We have all of that stuff. So, Riding the TTC is, is, is a very safe thing to do. What about, uh, well. uh, there, there have been complaints about some very crowded buses. Yes, yes there have. Uh, it, it, this is true. Uh, we, we know that during the pandemic, uh, the majority of our ridership has, has stayed uh, on buses. So our bus ridership right now is over 50%, almost 60% of what it was pre-pandemic. So that's a lot of people on buses. So we've redeployed extra bus service. We've retrained operators who were operating streetcars and subways to drive buses. So we have more bus service out there uh, because we've, we've been trying as best we can to keep no more than uh, half the number of regular people on a bus. So buses hold around 50 on a normal day. We're tr- we've tried to keep that to around 25. There are going to be times where, you know, when a, when a workplace lets out, for example, where, you know, you suddenly have a lot of people trying to, trying to cram onto a bus. We've tried to eliminate that. Uh, it's not always going to be possible. So there are those cases where we do see uh, some high ridership uh, buses and we try and get extra service out. And, and what are you anticipating? I mean, we just heard from the city that uh, it, it has a pretty huge shortfall and the majority of it is is due to lower ridership on the TTC. Yeah. Yeah, our revenue has taken a massive hit. There's no question. Um, you know, we were at 1.7 million rides a day uh, on on a normal weekday. Uh, that went to about 15 or 20 percent of that level um, uh, in in the uh, in the spring of 2020. Uh, and right now, we're at around 45 percent of normal ridership. Um, you know, the good news on this is that uh, you know the federal and provincial governments have stepped up. They have dedicated, uh, you know, emergency funding for public transit recovery, recognizing that public transit was disproportionately hit by uh, the pandemic in a way that no, you know, very few other public services would be. You know, the libraries, for example, may have been closed, but they don't generally collect revenue the way we do. So, um, so as a public service, we've definitely taken a, a, a hit, but uh, there's there's good news that there is going to be some um, funding for us. Okay. Stuart Green, TTC spokesman. Thanks so much for that. My pleasure, Libby. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, I'll tell you about the cost of severance for the MPs who lost their seats in the last election. Because even though the shape of the parliament looks a lot like uh, the last one, 51 MPs either lost their seats or decided not to 
run again. We'll talk about that when we come back. Before we go, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Golden Handshake for politicians retired by their choice or by the public's choice when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The overall numbers in the new parliament uh, look much the same as in the old ones, but 51 members of parliament lost their seats or decided not to run again, which means they qualify for a severance check worth half their salary, which is about $93,000 or more if they were a cabinet minister or chaired a committee. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation estimates that the total bill for this could be about $3.3 million plus $1.4 million every year for those who qualify for pensions. Now, what do you think of that? Is it okay? Is it too high? Uh, or are these numbers, frankly, just a drop in the bucket in the context of a $620 million election that most people did not want? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Franco Terrazano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Oh, you're very welcome. So uh, did these numbers surprise you at all? Yeah, you know, when we when we put these numbers out every every time after the election, they're always eye-popping, and, and it's always one conclusion that really lands with us, and it's that us taxpayers, we shouldn't be shedding too many tears for these politicians who end up losing in the election because they're going to be landing themselves a either a big severance check or big pension payments. And, you know, you ran through the overall numbers where the severances are going to cost us more than $3 million, that the MPs that are going to be collecting the pension, well, that's going to cost us about $1.4 million every single year. But let me dive into some of the nitty-gritty, so to speak. There's going to be 10 former members of Parliament who served for less than two years who still end up collecting more than $92,000 in severance. There's also 16 former members of Parliament who who will receive more than a million dollars in pension income if they continue to collect that pension to age 90. And there's also four members of Parliament who will be gathering and collecting more than $100,000 every single year in pension income. So we are paying a lot of money for these members of Parliament when they're actually serving, and we're also paying a ton of money once they retire or lose. Uh, here's one thing that I, I think <clears throat> is most likely to, to bug people is that it's one thing to get severance if you're, if you're uh, tossed from your job, but people who decide on their own not to run again, they qualify for the severance too. Why is that? Well, that's a huge, that's a great question. And it's, it's one of the reasons that we're calling uh, for reforms here to make these politicians pay and pensions and benefits affordable for taxpayers because they're not right now. And, and they're not given a few different contexts. The first context that we have to remember is that it's us Canadian taxpayers who are paying for these bills. And it's really us Canadian taxpayers who've been struggling for the last 
year and a half. So many in the private sector have lost their job, have taken a pay cut, or, or may have sold their small business closed down before their very eyes. And the second point piece of context that we have to remember is that the federal government is up to its eyeballs in debt. The federal government is a trillion dollars in debt. So, so given that context, um, certainly we should see some leadership from the top and willingness from politicians to reform their pay and pension to be more affordable for what taxpayers can pay. And, you know, another thing that I'll just throw out there again, which, which to me uh, was extremely eye-popping, was the fact that there was 10, 10 former members of parliament who served for less than two years who will still be pocketing $92,900 in severance. Wow. Um I'd like to give the numbers out again to uh, hear what our audience thinks of that. Less than two years and you get, uh, what, around 93K as your severance. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And again, the the big question I have out of all of this is, is it's one thing to get severance if you're defeated. Sometimes that can happen through no fault of your own. And uh, it's another to say, hey, I don't want to do this anymore and to still get severance. I mean, if you quit your job and you're a regular person, you're not going to qualify for unemployment insurance. Well, you know, let's also remember, too, that the type of pay that they're collecting as a just a backbench member of parliament right now, it's, it's close to one hundred and eighty six thousand dollars. So that is a huge sum of money. Our members of parliament um, also received two pay raises during this pandemic. Yeah, two pay raises while millions of Canadians struggle through COVID-19. These are supposed to be our representatives in Ottawa. Well, they don't seem to be representing us financially if they're collecting two pay raises, which range from about $6,900 for your backbench member of parliament all the way to an extra $13,800 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And I just want to put these numbers into context even more for for your listeners. Um, a backbench member of parliament is making close to $186,000. Well, that is very similar to what the Premier of Alberta is making. So, so <laughs> well, he's already making a ton of money. I don't, I don't know if he's the right person to complain, to uh, compare it to. There, there are a lot of people at this point who are saying uh, maybe he should be on unemployment. Uh, the numbers to call about all of this, these are severance numbers and compensation numbers for MPs, even if they've served for less than two years, even if they decided on their own not to run again. The numbers to call. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, let's hear from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good. It kind of makes me laugh listening to these numbers. You know, you look at Maria Monsas, um, all she really had was a bachelor of science degree, really no accomplishments in life. And she actually stated on uh, when she was on a Zoom call that she was making a quarter million a year as a, an MP or a, a she's minister. a minister. She yeah. was a minister. Yeah. So I mean, that's just way above her uh, her pay grade, as far as I'm concerned. And then you had the other one, the NDP. I think it was in Quebec. She ran as a joke, and she was in the United States when the election when she won the election. Oh, was that the young woman? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think she's, anyway. Um, but it's incredible that people that are this unserious get this kind of serious money. People work a lifetime and don't get these deals. 
Yeah, and Miriam Monsas is a very young woman. Uh, Franco, do you uh, have any top-of-head calculation about what Miriam Monsef is going to get? Yeah, let me take a quick look through through my spreadsheet, but I just want to touch on um, one point real quick that, that he just brought up, and it's the comparison with, with the private sector. Um, l- let's just remember that the vast majority of Canadians who are working outside of government don't even receive a workplace pension. And we're just throwing out these huge pensions uh, for politicians and also huge severance checks. Okay, so I looked into what she would be getting, and she's going to be collecting um, a little over $130,000 just through the severance that's going to, to Monsef. And what about, I mean, she's very young. Uh, does, does her formula add up to uh, a pension? So no pension because uh, she, she served for just under six years and you have to serve for six years to be eligible for that MP pension. You know, one of the, one of the, the interesting things that I read before the election was that some were really annoyed because there are a few people there who are just a couple of months short of, of six years and the prime minister called the election. Um, you know, if, if he had only waited a couple of months, they would have got their pension. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, forgive me if I'm not going to be shedding too many tears for them. Uh, again, like they are making a, a ton of money, even if you're just a backbench member of parliament, a hundred, nearly $186,000. They just pocketed two pay raises while millions of Canadians have been struggling through COVID-19. And again, the vast majority of Canadians who are outside of government, uh, well, what we have to do is, well, we have to take some of our paycheck and we have to put it away for our golden years or for the rainy day. Uh, so certainly we should be seeing our politicians live more within that type of financial reality. Okay, Bill, thanks for your call. Uh, let us go to Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon. Um, I'm, if you want to know my opinion, I'm incensed of this whole thing we have been with um, senators and other politicians getting what the regular public don't get. My question to Franco is, what as we, as individuals, can we do? Because there's power in numbers. If we all work together, can we change this? Franco? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so a few things. The first is, you know, we just I have to point out that there is no civil, silver bullet when it comes to any of this type of change. But what we have to do is we have to keep pushing back against these, uh, these, these politicians, whether that's organizing rallies when it's safe to do so, whether that's signing petitions. Certainly we have one at, at taxpayer.com regarding this pay. But um, especially what I think that you can do individually is give your member of parliament a phone call, write them a letter, send them an email, and, and, and tell them that it's absolutely unacceptable for them to be receiving two pay raises while so many Canadians have struggled through COVID-19. Um, tell them that you think that there needs to be a change to these pensions, to these severances, when they're so out of touch with the realities facing most Canadians. So there's a few things that you can do personally. I would say the thing that you can do today, tomorrow, is pick up that phone, call your member of parliament, send them an email, send them a letter, especially because they're just starting uh, this new job. Uh, they're going to want to get off on the right foot. Okay. Barry, thanks for your call. Um, you know, one of the arguments is that, that 
we don't get enough really good people who are running that sometimes when you're running and you have to run a campaign, like people even have to mortgage their houses. Uh, and again, they can be defeated through no fault of their own. If somebody is sick of the prime minister or the leader of the opposition, they could vote against somebody. Uh, what do you say to those arguments, Franco? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, essentially, there's always a risk when, when you're in any line of work, when you're in any line of business, if you're an entrepreneur, there's, there's always risk. Like, I understand the, 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 that point of view, but I would say the pendulum has just swung completely in the opposite direction. And when we talk about the House of Commons, when we talk about our representatives, which is what our members of Parliament should be, is our representatives, well, they have to actually represent the financial reality facing their constituents. If they don't represent the financial reality facing their constituents, how can we expect them to make decisions um, based on what they think their people are going through? Um, now, let me give you a prime example of what should have happened here in Canada during COVID-19. So in New Zealand, their prime minister, their ministers, their top bureaucrats, they came together almost immediately when COVID-19 touched down there, and they said, you know what, we are going to take a 20% pay cut uh, to show solidarity with the struggling taxpayers, with the struggling families, businesses who are paying our bills. Now, we did not see that here in Canada. No kidding. Good luck with that. We saw, yeah, we saw the opposite. Okay, let's hear from Charles in Port Dover. Hello, Charles. Hi, let me, uh, listen, just a, I seem to recall some time ago reading that uh, members of Parliament do not pay income tax. No, yeah, that's not that true. Uh, the, I, part of their compensation, they have housing allowances if they've got to rent a place in Ottawa. Uh, it, Franco, is that the only part of their compensation that's not taxable? Uh, I'd have to look into that further. Sorry, I don't have that data offhand. Okay, yeah, it's not, it, it wouldn't be their main, they have all kinds of stuff. So one of the things that they get is an allowance for having to maintain a second residence. And I believe that that is not taxable. Uh, but caveat, I, I could be quite wrong. So, um, well, Regardless, it's nice work if you can get it, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, you've got to run and have the people elect you. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Okay, Charles. Yeah, those you have to uh you have to get your party's nomination, you have to run, uh you have to door knock and and do all those things. I mean, uh you know, it's 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 not necessarily such an easy task though. Once you're in there, uh you may be able to stay in there without doing very much, <laughs> Franco. Um well, go ahead. You, you know, I think there's I think there's there's both fair ways to reform the system. I really do. Uh, talking about pensions, benefits, and pay. I mean, in terms of pensions, we have to re- uh, get away from these defined benefit pensions that in the private sector has has become so rare and, and move to a more matching RRSP-style pension for these members of parliament. That would be fair for them and much more affordable for taxpayers. In terms of pay, I think the first step is is let's just reverse these pandemic pay raises. They should have never seen their pay go up uh, during COVID-19. That would be the first step is to reduce or to reverse those pandemic pay raises. And when it comes to severance, let's remember that the people who are getting a severance, it's only either because they're under the age of 55 or because they haven't served for six years. So with the federal government more than a trillion dollars in debt, with taxpayers struggling all across Canada, removing the severance it sh- it should be doable. 
Okay. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people will still be talking about this. And and uh, thank you very much for joining us, Franco Terrazano. I appreciate it. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.